it still is and always was a race against the clock. It's like you have to be ready at 5.30 to hold doors open to serve these customers and customers order their food and they don't want to wait longer than 10 to 15 minutes for an appetizer. They don't want to wait longer than 10 or 15 minutes for their entree. So you're constantly like racing against the clock and here we are races, right? So it's like now I run races. Chill Track Friday, Running Nerds and Foodies. I'm Anne. I'm Ali. Oh, wait. Wait. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> <laughs> this coffee's working really well. Obviously, we got that backwards. I'm Ali. I'm Anne. Hi. Um. So, who's our guest today? Today, we have a really phenomenal guest with us. We know this person through New York Roadrunners Group Training, and he's become a good friend of ours. And he's an amazing runner, and he just has a lot of stick-to-itness. Um, this is our friend George Mendez. George is the chef and owner of Aldea Restaurant, and Aldea is a Michelin-starred restaurant. Pretty incredible. George is a multi-talented person. I'm really excited to talk to him. I'm, I'm actually very excited to talk about today's coffee yes. with him, and I don't even want to say too much. Can we just say, wow. Yeah, it's, wow is it's right. It's already kind of shot up to the top of my favorite coffee list. Yeah, I think we found the Chill Track Friday coffee. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And and it has a really strong connection to George. So yeah. let's just welcome George. Um, let's see. Where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> George graduated from the Culinary Institute of America in 1992. And after that, he worked with David. You're going to have to help me on the pronunciation of some of these names. Sure. David Boulay. David Boulay. Boulay. Yep. And you worked with him as the guard manager that Entremetier and the Poissonnier. Yeah, all French uh, kitchen terminology. Grand manger, uh, entremetier, and Poissonnier, which is basically cold station, vegetable station, and fish station. It's amazing. You have a lot of experience with French. Um, yes, that was definitely my, my foundation, the fundamentals. It was in classical French cuisine. It's very interesting. Okay, so then you did two month-long stages at Alain Passard Arpege in Paris. Right. And something that I read on one of your bios, which made me think a lot about your running, is that um, you learned two fundamental principles, sourcing the best ingredients and simple preparation, which I love. Yes. I love that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I think it's still a motto that um, we operate with today amongst a lot of the dining trends. And, and um, I mean, we, we, we kind of strike a balance of getting, getting the customers what they want but also making sure that um, myself as a chef and, and the team are still creative and also enjoying what we're doing and striking that balance, which sometimes can be really hard. Sometimes you can tip the scale where it's like, we're going to be super creative and, and, and create all these whimsical dishes and beautiful and tell people how to eat. When at the end of the day, people just want to come in and eat mm-hmm. and be satiated and nourished, be taken care of. And sometimes our egos get in the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot of times it goes getting away. I was like, no, 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 I just read that you can take olive oil and freeze it and make droplets into a bath of tuna eyeball fat. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, so it's, it's like, you know, like, stop. Like, we got to stop. stop. <laughs> I love that. You're like, yeah, so, this, this, is not a TV, this is not a TV show, right? Not, right. Not no, everything's and, and a TV and show. The, yeah, and I think my favorite and perfect example is literally just yesterday where 
We cook, I cook from a very emotional standpoint, um, and I, I cook a lot with what I'm feeling in that given day, and I'm driven a lot by mood, mm. um, as crazy as that might sound, and there may be days where I'll just be like, you know what, I'm so tired of that scallops dish, I have to change it, and some people go through, some people will go through stages of like drawing the dish on a piece of paper and then listing the listing the ingredients from the online produce company list of ingredients and then going phase one of research and development and phase three of trying the dish and seeing how it tastes and sitting down and eating it and before you know it it's like a week to develop a dish and yesterday i was like you know what f that i want to change a scallop dish i'm gonna walk out to the market i'm gonna look at the ingredients i'm gonna see what speaks to me i'm gonna come back cut it cook it mm-hmm. cook the scallops and put it on the plate and it's it there's, there's a lot more involved than that don't get me wrong but sometimes and, and i think this is something that i learned from um david boulet which is that that sense of spontaneity and like mm-hmm. cooking with your feelings and just saying you know i, I know that this works and this comes with the, it came it comes with a lot of experience and trial and error and knowing what the flavor balances are of course but um you know, a lot of that, you know, going back to what you were saying is how you apply that train of thought into running and, and training and like less is more or quality or, you know, cut the BS or, mm-hmm. you know, like really believing in your believing in your mentorships, believing in your coaches. And that's what I think um, there's a symbiosis of mm-hmm. both worlds come into play. That's really interesting. I mean, as someone who's been to your restaurant a few times, when I saw this phrase, I absolutely thought, oh, that was my experience at Aldea because everything that you have is such good quality, but you can taste everything. There's nothing, there's not any, nothing is in excess. Everything is perfectly balanced. And that's something that often if you go to a fancy restaurant or something with like a big name and you go and sometimes there's just too much going on on the plate and it's hard to, it's too much. And you're, what you've done, the simplicity with which you cook and you present, it's so beautiful. So after Boulet closed in 1996, and then you moved and became the executive chef of Le Zoo, which was a small, is it still open? No, it's, uh, it became another restaurant. Okay, okay. It's a small French bistro in Greenwich Village. Yeah, that was 1996. Oof. Yeah. Long time ago. <laughs> Long time ago. 24 years old. And I did not know this, that you went down to D.C. and worked as the executive sous chef at um, Lespinas. Lespinas, yep. That was uh, right before the, the new, um, 1999, in the, the year 2000, everybody thought the world was going to end and it was going to be a right. big explosion or something when the <laughs> clock struck at midnight. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a fun time, fun time. How long were you there for? Uh, just under a year. Okay. Um, I, I found out quickly that my heart belonged in my heart longed for New York City, and it was where I wanted to be in Washington D.C. You know, sometimes it takes, sometimes it requires you to leave somewhere to realize how much you actually do enjoy it. And going to Washington D.C. was that like break, like okay, I got done. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, um, yeah, it's, it's okay. a different scene. Down it's a different there. scene down there, and, and uh, different experience. I was able to travel via that via that um, time period. I was able to go to France again, but then come back to New York. I was like, yeah, I could be here. That's great. That's really great. So we get, you went to uh, Le Moulin de Moujon? Yep. Uh, Le, Le Moulin de Moujon, which was a, um, a very classical Provençal restaurant in the south of France, um, owned by Roger Verger, who, rest in peace, passed away recently, who mentored many, many chefs, and I was able to spend some time. He was already retired, so the kitchen was run by his team, mm-hmm. his, uh, his soldiers and lieutenants. Um, awesome time as well wow that's great 
Um, and then you came back to New York and you worked with a friend who you who you worked with at Boulay, uh, Kurt Gutenbrunner. Gutenbrunner, yes. And he opened his Austrian restaurant, Walse. Yes. Is that the one that's in Chelsea? Yeah, okay. uh, West Village. West Village, yes. yes. Okay. Still there today. So then in 2003, you staged with uh, the Bosque chef Martin... Bernasetzegui. Okay. Yeah. Um, at his three-star Michelin restaurant in San Sebastian, Spain. Yep. And so that's sort of when you got into the Iberian Peninsula cooking, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, that basically was a, uh, a, a really crucial time in my career where I was able to start um, finding my voice and creating mm-hmm. and, and defining who I was as a chef and, and creating my identity and a name for myself and what it was that I wanted to cook because I was, I was cooking and training under so many other people that I was just like, you know, doing what I was told, creating their recipes, executing their vision. In the back of my mind, I was like, okay, what's next? You know what? What are we gonna do next? Where was the? What was the moment of inspiration, or maybe not even inspiration? I guess at a certain point there must have been a tipping point where you're like, okay, I have to, I have to define my own self, and I think I know, or at least I have some idea of what I want to do. Right, and, and I think it was right around two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three. That that time period. Um, you know, right after 9-11 and, you know, the city was a very somber state and I wasn't, um, I wasn't feeling satisfied where I was currently working at that time. And I knew that I wanted to travel again and I went to Spain and this was a, this was a, a period in gastronomy and cooking where there was a lot more avant-garde, um, cooking going on, especially led by Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I wanted to go there and it was at that point where I was in just this world of, and Martin Barazategui and San Sebastián, where he was cooking grandmother's recipes and family recipes, but interpreting them in a modern, creative, fun way. Mm-hmm. And right, right around there, a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, okay, he's doing it with Basque and Spanish food. I want to do this with Portuguese food. And that was it. I was like, I want to... And my automatically, my mind went right back to the kitchen table at my mom's and dad's house and the dishes and the rice dishes and the cod salt cod like seven days a week and like all the family gatherings and that's what that's what i just started like sitting down like you know, like wow like that was, that's my earliest food memory so it was about it was then that i started to like lay this puzzle in front of me and be like all right i have all these pieces now and what do i need to complete this and what's next and that's when i just said i have to take my training and then marry it with my roots my DNA of Portuguese culture and cuisine and like memories and a lot of kind of stuff. I started traveling to Portugal more, and that's how that's what called that's what laid the groundwork for Aldea. Mm-hmm. Was years two thousand two, three, four, and that's when I went to uh, that's when I opened up Tocqueville. I'm sorry, that's when I was a chef de cuisine at Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. Is when I was able to start executing dishes and and tasting them and, and messing them up, and it was trial and error and. I was grateful to have a husband and wife team, Marco and Joanne Moreira, that were running the restaurant, you know, so successfully and, and and showing me, you know, how important hospitality is, not just putting forth on a plate, but the whole experience. And that was mm-hmm. the first time I was starting to see that way or, or that part of the restaurant. When, when you say that the first time before that, were you mostly just in the back in the kitchen so you didn't think of you're just so focused on executing all of these dishes for everyone else that you didn't think of like okay what's 
from entering the restaurant all the way to leaving, what is that experience like? In right. Theory? Yeah. I mean, I had a little introduction to it when I was at Walse with Kurt Gutenbrunner. He uh, such a probably one of the most hands-on restaurant operators till this day that I've ever known. Um, who is a chef by training, but a restaurant tour that knows every every aspect of running a restaurant from the customer walking into the door to how the dishwasher works and everything in between. And that that point, it was like, and we had a small little kitchen door that opened up right into the dining room, and he would always be in the kitchen cooking right there next to me. And then all of a sudden, he would just turn around and peek out the window of the kitchen door to the dining room, and he'd be like, George, look, see, see what's happening right there? That's like that isn't right or you know that person shouldn't be eating that way or the waiter should not be at the table talking to the customer like that. it was like all these I still remember all these little tidbits mm-hmm. of information I'm like and I'm thinking to myself this guy's a maniac mm-hmm. like how can we like and he's like well, by the way the cod is not cooked enough and that vegetable and all of a sudden he turn around and say hey you need to go to table 11 and change the flowers and the candles out in the bathroom and the stairs are dirty it was like all in a span of like three minutes. It's like a complete download of yeah. what's going on in the restaurant at that moment. So that's what kind of also introduced me and started to mm-hmm. also plant a seed for Aldea, which is kind of nuts. It's like, yeah. that's where you, 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 not to get into this too much, this is a running podcast, right? No, no, this is amazing. No, no, we, but you, like you to use really, the word running a restaurant many times already. Yeah, so running a running restaurant. And, and it, it, it laid the groundwork um, of like multitasking, but also a dangerous way where you start to begin to take on so much where you forget or never learn the skill of delegation and, uh-huh. and overseeing and, and leadership and mentoring, which is, I got to be fully honest with you, it's something I'm still working on today where I learn to delegate more. I'm in a position where I need to mentor more and lead more, but I'm also a very hands-on person, as both of you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, those years were for me really, really important to to see the whole entire operation, you know. And I think it just get a taste of everything. It was like it was a, it was as if I was back at school again. It was Walse, and then Tocqueville with Marco and Joanne was the same thing. It was like here you are, a husband and wife team that were just, you know, he was executive chef, letting me run the kitchen, creating menus with him. And then Joanne ran the dining room, and it was this constant communication with what was going on. And on top of that, a whole another level of a department of catering, off-premise catering. So mm-hmm. it was that level too, where we'd be like 120 dinners on a Saturday night, and then a party for 500 people at the former Studio 54 nightclub. Wow. It's like, how are we going to pull this off? And he, would, <laughs> I, he would just be like, just make it happen. <laughs> you make it happen, yeah. and make it happen is that we I use that word yeah. in training and running. It's like just make it happen. Push. push. It's right? interesting. <laughs> <laughs> push. But yeah. embra- embrace the pain. Embrace the pain. It's yeah. Embrace the suck we say all the time. But what like amazing people to learn from. And I see that quality in you. And one of my favorite things about going out to eat with you is watching you experience the entire experience. Not just from what you're eating, but I think very specifically about the dinner we went to the night before the Boston Marathon last year. When it was like kind of hectic and, you know, whatever. But... 
you are very comfortable at a table and it's really wonderful to watch you watching the experience of what's happening and like when the dishes are coming and how they're coming and in what order and if it's taking too long and not in an obsessive way but in someone that's very careful conscious and conscious yeah. and aware yeah. and you well, are a perfectionist in like a, in, in all the positive ways of perfectionism <laughs> I think I see well that particular evening I also want to make sure that my friends you guys were getting food because we need to run 26.2 <laughs> miles the next day so can we get our pot Pasta, I know. Please. I know. Each time someone opened the door and decided to stand there for a while, with the door the, open, with the, the door wall, open, all the, the sideways, yeah, all the yeah. sideways. And we're like, can we maybe? Do you think it's gonna be sunny tomorrow? Do you think it's gonna be warm out? I mean, should we wear long sleeve and long johns, or can we wear singlet? I was like, yeah, that was a decision. Like, what? That's when we were talking game about what time to wear. Decision. Yeah. This is all the in shower cap. Yeah. The green this is all in cap. reference to Boston. 2018 Boston. Boston. Which um, is coming up this weekend. Or next weekend. Um, wait, before we um, move on to running, I just want to point out that in 2008 is when you opened Aldea Restaurant. 2009. Sorry. 2009. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, 2000, wow. Well, 2008 is a very important year because we were in a lot of planning and construction. Okay. Yep. Okay. From, okay. from lease signing to opening day was a, believe it or not, like 18-month Wow. process did over it, a really long time did it take you a long time to find your location oh yeah almost yeah. two years wow a deal fell through numerous locations looking looking you know test of, talk about test of patience it was you know like pulling teeth and pulling hair I was like oh like how can this be taking so long and we never write then all of a sudden it just appeared top yeah that's great that's a perfect example of how yeah, sometimes you just have to wait for the right thing to happen, and it can take a long time. It's it's it's. I love a motto of fail, 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 <laughs> fail. One more time, fail, and then succeed. And it's like that ladder of getting kicked down so many times, and then the perseverance. That's what defines you, defines your character, and defines you. like you know what. And and Daph, Coach Daphne talks about that too, and it's like. You just keep going, the road to the Boston Marathon. So you keep going, you keep going, you know you're gonna get that qualifying time. So keep going, you didn't make it today. Shit, we keep going, we'll run that next race. We'll run the next race, I'm gonna train harder, and I'm gonna get kicked down again, I'm not gonna make it. But it's like, it's that constant, like, belief, perseverance. Because no, no, everybody sees success as a celebratory, right? And it's a celebration of success, but a lot of people don't know what it takes to get there. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot. It's not. It's not. A, it's not an upgrade. It's not a, just a, this ladder that you just climb, and all of a sudden success is right there. Yeah. It's about going up the ladder and tripping and getting pulled down and starting at that first step again and going a little bit farther this time than maybe falling back down again. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so true. Crazy. Because like, if it's you look so at, nuts. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, that really, and it's just I want to confirm. This. So you said, you're. You know, your, the the food table at home is always salted cod. So there was all was there is is that true? So like there was always like a bacalao or like a version of bacalao at in the kitchen at home. Um, it, growing not necessarily up? a variety of preparations, but there was always bacalao. It was boiled, served with potatoes, and a glass jar of olive oil and a glass jar of vinegar. Um, Hard boiled eggs, you know, that you would crack on the edge of the pot, break open, peel them, and eat them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember, I can still taste every single one of those ingredients. And my father, my mom would make it, and my father would eat it, could eat it at least three or four times a week. Um, and it's a staple, to this day, it's a staple of Portuguese cuisine. Um, 
And it, I got to be honest with you, I hated it back then. I hated it growing up as a kid. Like, oh my God, salt cod again. <laughs> and I even talk about it. I even talk about it in my book. It was salt cod was always soaking in water in the garage next to my basketball. <laughs> and I was like, it stinks. It stinks. It's like, you know, I just got used to it. I got used to it. I never, and I never, and back then, because as you guys may know, I used to have hoop dreams. You know, like I was, I'm 5'9 now. I was 5'6, five, 5'7 five, growing up. And I wanted to be an NBA star. Mm-hmm. I was like so determined and believed that I was one day going to be on TV playing for the NBA. <laughs> and then my dad woke up and he's like, he's like, shook his head. He's like, you know, you're not going to make any money playing basketball. And, uh, you know, you can keep watching the Boston Celtics. It's great, but just you need to get a job. And I just like, I just got so crushed. I was like, man, he's right. It's like, like that's right. So, I mean, you went straight from high school to the Coding Culinary school. Institute. So yeah. how, I mean, that's pretty young to make that decision. Was it because of these conversations you have with your dad? It was It was definitely with the conversation I have with my dad um, and mom. They, the important thing here is, is, I need to mention, is they both immigrated from Portugal in 1969 with four years of education. Wow. The equivalent of elementary school, four years. And I was brought up um, um, in a you know, blue-collar family and my dad worked really hard outside building foundations and, and construction and paving asphalt roads and uh, they epitome of a handyman he knew how to do everything and my mother was working in a pencil factory making number two pencils and uh, that's how I grew up throughout my school years and I went of course I was Americanized and went to elementary school and junior high school and high school and when I got to senior year of high school I remember my high school sweetheart her parents were just like where are you going to college George and I'm like college um, I don't know. And they're like, well, are you going to visit any universities? And I said, well, I don't want any plans. He's like, did you take an SAT test yet? And I said, no. And I, I went home, I, I, going home to my mother and asking them what an SAT, SAT test was, would be like asking them what's the abbreviation for Saturday. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, um, work, get a paycheck, do something that you love, make you happy and, mm-hmm. and save money. And, uh, Right around that time, there was a field trip to the College Institute of America with my marketing class, and I went up there for the day. And I, this is in high school. This is in high school. Okay. And then I, I went up there for the day and really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the hustle and bustle of the kitchen. And I was very athletic, mind you. I was playing basketball. I was I was playing soccer. So I knew that I wanted to do something active. Um, and I always I loved the pressure. I loved the the adrenaline rush of being in the kitchen, and you know chefs screaming at you and mm-hmm. custom, it was it's a it still is and always was a race against the clock it's like you have to be ready at 5 30 to doors open to serve these customers and customers order their food and they don't want to wait longer than 10 to 15 minutes for an appetizer they don't want to wait longer than 10 or 15 minutes for their entree so you're constantly like racing against the clock and here we are running races yeah, right is that so why it's you like, run races that's why i run races <laughs> but yeah that's that's how that all started was Basically, I didn't really know. I didn't know. Um, I, I I considered it. I considered it. Was, I was in a vocational technical school freshman year, studying architecture and drafting, and I was going to pursue a career um, in architecture. And I was mm-hmm. buying Frank Lloyd Wright's books and studying all these great books of architecture and and um, Roman um, columns and like beautiful, really historic stuff. But I couldn't sit still. I couldn't mm-hmm. sit at a desk and draw. Yeah, I had to. I had to be moving. 
so here we are. Wow, that's so cool. That's yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, were you running during any of the? I mean, you said you were playing basketball and stuff. Were you also running as its own activity, or did that come? I later? did not have a pair of running sneakers. Okay. Nope. I had basketball shoes, basketball sneakers, soccer cleats. Eventually, yeah, they, everything became more focused on basketball. So that that was it. Did you keep playing basketball while you were doing your training? No. Like the um, chef no, training? No, no. I mean, just just leisurely, but um, I played up until junior vice, uh, junior varsity uh, basketball team in, in high school, and that was it. And then senior year came around. I was doing a little bit of weightlifting, weight mm-hmm. training with friends, and then we're all today, still till today, they're muscle heads. It's amazing. <laughs> um, they're muscle all muscle heads. heads. They're, they're so cool. And I enrolled in cooking school, and, and uh, that was it. What are your favorite memories of cooking school? Being called George Burns. <laughs> are you serious? I don't know. How did that happen? Did you that, burn something? I burned the shit out of pots and pans when I was cooking school. <laughs> I was the youngest. I was youngest in my class, and uh, I was I was greener than Kermit. Um, oh my god! Uh, it was awful. I was awful. I was a hack. I was so bad. I was so bad. I, mean, was, I, I still remember my first few months of culinary school. I would. I was sick. I was 17 years old, and my classmates all had former bachelor's degrees and their career changes, and they're all in their 20s. So Friday and Saturday nights, they'd all go to the bars, and I didn't have a fake ID, so I would just stay at my dorm and sharpen my knife and get ready for the next day, mm. and like lose sleep and be like, I have to study. I'm gonna get this right, and tomorrow I'm gonna be ready. I'm gonna make all these classical sauces and whatever. And I just go in the kitchen and I would just bomb, <laughs> and the chef would be like, look at me, like pathetic. I mean, I was I was called pathetic so many times, and the way I would like walk out in the hallway in the kitchen, and I would just like break down, and the chef would come outside and he'd be like, "Just get back in there and try and keep trying." Wow, that was it. But that was that was that was a fun fun time of just getting my ass kicked. Trial by <laughs> trial by fire. Trial that, by fire. Yeah, trial by fire. Literally. Talk about character building, though. That's mm-hmm. really hard to be in a situation where you're failing and you keep trying and you're failing and you keep. I mean, yeah. obviously you learned, but that to show up every day when that's happening is like climbing a mountain. That's really, really challenging. I I, I learned. It's funny. Just in this conversation, I, I, there was so many um, things that I learned in cooking and in, in culinary school and fundamentals that you can apply to running today mm-hmm. in training. There really is. Yeah. Sure. Can you can you give a couple yeah. of examples? Uh, perseverance, mm-hmm. number one. Mm-hmm. Perseverance is big. Um, belief. I mean, that, that's a very strong word for me. Um, and and consistency is is really important. Um, organization. Organization of just uh, of every aspect, you know, like organizing all the ra- all your gear before race morning and the night before, and like laying everything out, right? Laying all your gels and your shirts and your 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 sneakers and all that stuff, and then your your plan, your mm-hmm. race plan. I mean, that was the race plan is is the same in the kitchen. What we call a mise en place list of like, I'm gonna go in and I'm going to have these ingredients that I need to grab. I'm gonna put them in this order, and I need to go over there and grab these. Um, these uh, ingredients from the refrigerator, these ingredients from the dry storage, and put them all in my station, and then start cooking. You know, I didn't put two and two together until you just said that. Right. Remembering two nights before Boston or the night before Boston, sitting down and talking about the fueling plan for yeah. This, yeah. for Boston, and it 
when you were writing everything down and this makes perfect sense. <laughs> you were kind of applying what you're doing at at a restaurant, like the, what you have learned and that's, that's, that's what that was. And you kind of put it in words. I didn't. Right. It, 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 it is. I, I didn't think about it much before, but it's the same, mm. it's the same yeah. act. It's the same act. And I, and it, I remember being forced to in cooking school, I was known, I, I, can probably say that I was known to put the best mise en place lists together in the entire class. Where the one day I was embarrassed, like the chef called me, he's like, "If you need to learn how to make a mise en place list, go and see George." Oh, nice. And my my shit was like boom, 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 <laughs> and every single it was like, I, I remember my kitchen, my station had all the pots and pans and utensils, and I got so I I geeked out and took it so far as to every little piece of equipment had a piece of masking tape on it that says that had what it was be, being used for and when I needed it. Mm-hmm. And the chef would walk over, he'd be like, he would stop and be like, what is that? And I was <laughs> like, I'm, I would just say, it's organization, chef. Mm-hmm. And he would just walk away. But it was it was, it was, it was systems like that, that eventually, mm-hmm. eventually I didn't have to use masking tape on all the utensils anymore, but um, example of what, how far it would take that, that notion of organization. You were doing what you needed to do to learn. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. And you do that with your training. I'm just thinking about your Boston Marathon training last year. It's like you had the plan. <laughs> I remember you would text me what you were doing. I had doing. the plan and I had no life. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you said something funny that your um, one of your partners was like, okay, w- once the marathon was over, he was like, okay, you ready to come back to your job? You're ready to go back to work. Yeah, my, my, my partner said that. He's like, you know, how'd you do? Great. I'm like, okay, you ready to go back to work now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm gonna take us back for a second. Can you tell us about like how you got into running? Like your first, what when you put those sneakers on to go for a run and why? If yeah, you know, it, it, it's gonna go back to a, a period of my life about um, four years ago that um, I was just uh, hit a wall, burning the candles on both ends from working, um, sleeping very little, staying out very late, eating a poor diet and just my quality of life was deteriorating um, and everything around me was starting to fall apart because I was so engulfed in the restaurant culture and just so involved, engulfed in the intensity of it all and the the stereotype of a chef where you're like, you're pushing 12, 14 hours a day and then you're going out and you're partying and all that and it just got to a point where I was consumed by it all and I was just not taking care of myself and I wasn't taking care of my loved ones and I just um, hit a wall and it was time for a change and I got you know my loved ones called it out and they're just like hey you know you need to you need to stop you need to do something different and it was it, you know there was there was I remember the very first uh, New York Roadrunners race was the Portugal Day race and it was a four mile race in Central Park um, I was severely out of shape and I was doing the loop and about a mile and a half in, I stopped and started walking and I said, um, I'm going to have a heart attack. Mm. And my partner at the time just said, no, you're not. Just keep going. And I kept going. And I eventually finished the race. And, and then that was the beginning of then doing a 5K out west in, in Aspen, Colorado, which I did not stop running. I, I ran, didn't stop at all, did not walk. And that... It was at the end of that race that was another fellow chef there who had finished an easily 10 minutes faster than me. And mind you, it was only a 5K. And 
I remember feeling this sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. at the end of a 5K and knowing that I didn't stop at all. And that was that was the beginning for me. That was when I just said, wow, I really like this running stuff. And I came back to New York City from that weekend and um, my cousin introduced me to the Nike running app, mm-hmm. which I at the time wore this big ass running band on my arm with my my phone and it had the, the Nike running app. I mean, which is brilliant, by the way. I'm not... It, I still like it today, even though I just wear a watch. But they would talk in your earpiece, and you'd be like, "You've reached mile one, mile one pace nine forty-five," and it would talk to you, and I'd be like, "Oh wow, this is pretty cool." I'm like, "I'm running, and I can play music," mm-hmm. and that's what started the habit. So I, I, I have to give credit, full credit to Nike. Nike, are you listening? Um, <laughs> I give full credit to Nike, like at Nike, at Nike, like to be like this really got me started. It really got me started mm-hmm. into the groove. Then I just changed. My eating habits changed. My sleeping habits met you guys, met the met everything, and, and started you know met John Honor Camp, and then eventually Stewart, and everybody was just like paving the way for a new chapter of my life. I think that's that's really how it started. That's so cool. Yeah. So let's talk about the coffee that we're drinking because you're involved in so many different projects, and this is one. I love the label. It says this is a social project coffee. Yeah. So. This the thing coffee collaboration started with a very simple thing. It started with a I walked by Think Coffee on Sixth mm-hmm. Avenue during my commute in the morning, coming off the F train on the way to all day, and I would stop in there for my um, regular cup of coffee. And um, there was a moment where my uh, publicist was we were talking and, and discussing possible. Um, it was all about philanthropy and talking about charities to get together with and. And develop relationships with and um, think coffee came to mind right away as a brand but also from the social project initiatives that they have with um, countries like in Ethiopia and and Colombia and Nicaragua where everything is driven by social change or initiatives to um, help communities in need Um, whether it's school children whether it's um, women in poverty, um, providing supplies for female care and, and, and feeding children. It was like everything, everything had a reason to be. And also the way they source their coffee beans with the farmers directly and, and cut out, you know, unfair trade and that kind of thing. That was really attractive to me. And that's that's basically how I, we approached it and started the dialogue um, about a collaboration of a coffee. And not just saying, not just not just by tasting coffee and creating a blend together, but talking about why it made sense, what my beliefs were as a chef, what my philanthropy work was in other organizations, how I view this relationship starting. And so we agreed that we both had the same values and same beliefs with sustainability and care and um, helping people with need. I mean, I automatically said, can we do a blend, but I wanna be involved with the country specifically and uh, maybe visit it and, and, and see how the whole process of coffee, beans, the cultivation to the whole roasting process. He's like, well, we, and then basically the way, way it started was we can't do the country just, you know, they go that far into it. But what we can do is, is source green, green coffee beans from different countries, sit down at a table, at a roaster, roast the beans, do a cupping ceremony where you taste individual beans, um, 
and taste their different nuances and then start a blend from there. Start a blend from scratch, from raw green coffee beans to a finished product. And that's that process itself took three months. You know, so it wasn't just it wasn't just about like, okay, taking the Aldea sticker, the, the George Mendes brand and sticking it on a bag with Think Coffee and saying, hey, it's a collaboration project. It's a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and you know, our proceeds are going to the World Food Program um, that you, you can read all about it on thinkcoffee.com. And um, the tasting notes, it was it was stuff that I picked up and what the roaster picked up. And we, you know, either he would say, no, you're crazy, it's not that. Or I would be like, what do you mean, you can't taste that? It was like this dialogue, like, it was crazy. It was like this, yeah, like this is what I taste. It's like, well, what if, what if we add this? So it was a real big team effort. And I think something I'm really proud of is, A, the learning experience of how coffee, the whole coffee chain and how it works and roasting. And I've never seen a green coffee bean in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, now we're roasting it. And it's like, what? It, it, it's intense. It's so it, intense. The love is in this. I, yeah. it, I can, this morning was the first time I had it at home. And then I never drink coffee after 11 a.m. I got here at 1 p.m. And I, I asked Dan, can you make some of the Aldea blend? Because I'm not even kidding. It is the best coffee I've had. And I'm not just saying it because it's sitting in front of me and because you're here. It What you just described makes it's in there. It Like, I encourage everyone to, like, try that. That is so, it was so delicious. Absolutely. I thought the same thing. Okay, so this one that we're drinking says, tasting notes of sparkling grapefruit and chocolate-covered cherries. And I'm not joking, but when I took the first sip, I didn't put any milk in it. I wanted to taste it without anything first. And I I recognize that deep, dark cherry feeling. Like, you know, there is a flavor there that is cherry reminiscent those, for those sure are the, uh, those are the Colombian beans two questions how many different kinds of beans did you use and how did you come up with actually nailing down what it was ringing for you in terms I of was that? after I was the, the two words that described the best the new and the comp or the the description that I wanted in the coffee was chocolatey chocolatey fruit mm. that's what I kept going back to I wanted that dark roast and I wanted that that finesse of fruit that that silkiness that you know that little balance of like okay it's not just as dark rose and it's like full-on bitter because that could be a little off-putting and then the fact that i always add dairy <laughs> to my coffee so i want to make sure that if i add that and well and i will do i mean there's a lot of black coffee drinkers there but also people that add creamers so mm-hmm. i took both in consideration and i said and i and i made sure that the roaster and i and the and the think coffee team that we tasted it both ways. And I said, you know, this is this is how I like to drink my coffee and you guys are not going to convince me otherwise. And um, and even including adding some sugar. Um, that's just how it is for me. And mm-hmm. and uh, we did both both scenarios. And I even made the coffee roaster who drinks a coffee black at an exact temperature. I said, I want you to taste this coffee with milk and sugar. And he looked at me like, what? I'm like, just taste <laughs> it and tell me what you think. And he'd be like, yeah, it's still, I still, I still enjoy it. I'm not gonna drink my coffee like that, but uh-huh. I'm still gonna enjoy it. So I made sure that it covered that that spectrum, and I think that was because we, we went through so many different recipes per se that had, gosh, beans from Ethiopia, Colombia, Nicaragua, uh, different ratios. The ratios was made a bit different. And then there's this one um, bean, I forgot the name. It'll come to me shortly. Um, that was like the black sheep. It's like it was just like this. Oh, Robusto. It's called Robusto. We had the Robusto bean into the blend of Colombia and Ethiopia. And Robusto on, the own, on its own was so bad, <laughs> so bad of a coffee bean by itself when you brewed it. But when you added it to other stuff, it kind of just mellowed it. Or it, just, it brought its own little, 
it bought its own little instrument to the symphony, you know? And mm. it was like, this this is interesting. Um, oh, that's amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then at the end it was like, we ended up... So, in, at the end of the day, the Aldea blend is Colombian and Ethiopian beans. Higher ratio of Colombia. Um, I think it's the 70% and 30% Ethiopian beans. Um, and that's how it ended up being. And I can't tell you more than you should just buy a bag and taste it for yourself. Yeah, where, where can people get the bag? Uh, you can get the bag on, you can go to the All Think Coffee locations. There's about nine stores in Manhattan. Or you can go online to thinkcoffee.com and have it sent to your doorstep. I have a question. Is this like a limited edition? Um, it'll, be out, it'll be out for an unlimited time. Okay. Um, and um, I can give you guys a teaser that there is uh, another surprise in the works. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. What? what? I can't say anything else about it. I can't say anything else about it. It's really smooth. Yep. And um, I, I spring cleaned my entire apartment this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like one day you were like hanging off the ceiling. I'm like, Ann, are you doing? I'm like, hi. Yeah. And I had already crashed. You saw me in the pigeon pose. <laughs> <laughs> You're shaking right now. You know the fix? <laughs> no, but it's like such a smooth caffeination. It's yeah, totally, it is. it's it really, really is. smooth. Well done. I'm really happy you guys enjoy it. Um, so to talk a little bit about running, can we talk about your Boston Marathon training and sure. the Boston Marathon? Yeah. Um, so like you had a lot going on at that time. So you're doing this like hardcore training. You're raising money for um, Loving Spoonfuls, and you had just closed Lupolo, right? Had uh, we recently closed the restaurant uh, Lupolo, and um, coming off a relationship as well. So it was like. <laughs> it was a lot going on at the same time. And you, I remember you and I would text a lot because you were doing the level three Boston Marathon training plan that's on the Boston Marathon website. Right. And it was like way too much for me. I was like, I can't do this. Oh, it was and intense. And I was, it, you, I mean, you were just slamming it. It was amazing. It was, it was, yeah, you know, I, it, it goes back to the commitment, um, commitment perseverance thing. It's like I, was, I saw this plan and then I said, this is what we're going to do. And there was there was another another program that I had there, and I know you and I talk about the Blender <laughs> program a lot. That is, we we love it, but we don't recommend it, right? Yes, is that, what we, that that was a conclusion. Um, it's a time period where, um, again, it was one of those things where you you say you read something and you put your mind to it and say, "This is a plan I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to it." And when you say commit, it's like go. And you put what I like to call the racehorse blinders on and you just go straight mm-hmm. and that's it. And you can't let any distractions um, deter you. And I think that's the level of focus and discipline um, that is required um, for what I like to call the ideal performance state where it's like the, the zone, what you like to call it. And I think that's where that's where uh, that's what. I apply to for Boston and and the training, you know. In Boston, like I remember, Boston for me was was very tricky because um, I had a really hard time first saying yes to doing it and raising the charity because it's such a it's such a prestigious race that people qualify for. And I remember having discussion with coaches and you guys and be like, guys, you know, here's this opportunity. And it's like I don't know if I should do this because I respect and love this sport that I almost felt like you know no I want to earn my way in not pay myself way in but then it was just like well here's this beautiful charity based in Boston called Love and Spoonfuls and you're raising money um, through food and providing you know food to the homeless and I'm, I'm going up to Boston and getting on this truck and 
collecting uh, food and distributing it to soup ho- to soup kitchens and to underprivileged communities. So I was like, why not? It's like why not? At the end of the day, I was like, I just gotta get to do it. I just gotta do it. And I think that's also the driving the driving force for my training was like, if I didn't qualify for it, even if I didn't qualify for it. I was damn, I put the damn hard work into getting myself to that start line mm-hmm. at the best possible shape. So that was a commitment I made with myself. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to raise the funds for this charity and I'm going to commit myself to this program and that's going to be my life for the next three months. And, and that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. That's pretty much what happened. And you raised significantly more than you had committed to do. You just kept making more money for this. <laughs> like amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like keep going, keep going. Yeah. It's uh mm-hmm. it, it's such a great it's such a great cause. And I was proud, proud to say that I raised almost eighteen thousand dollars for Love and Spoonfuls. That's amazing, that George. Really, amazing. It was, but you know, it's I'm grateful for the amount of people that came out to the yeah. to the fundraising initiatives and, and dinners and independent donors that went online and read about the cause. I mean, it's just um, it's amazing. And going out yeah. going out into the streets of Boston and distributing food, it was very humbling, extremely humbling. Um, it's it's a area of 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 our of our world of of of, of food insecurity and knowing how many people that um, have access to food but can't afford it or you know just you know there's so many levels of why people are not getting nourished and not able to get food whether it's just they're not they don't make enough income or you know they have too big of a family or you know there's so many ways of Mm -hmm. reasons for it so i was able to i was i was really happy to be able to contribute and make a small difference that's great really putting your running to work it's really yeah for sure and then you ran a flat 12-minute PR on that day <laughs> on Boston. Coming off of New York, yeah. you ran 355-42. You ran at 343-42. And it was a negative split. And it was a negative split <laughs> with a 30-mile... Uh, it's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. <laughs> no way. <laughs> at Nike again? Okay. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, it was your training. There's no way. That doesn't even... It's nowhere near 4%. It's way more yeah, than that. So It was you and your training. It so what amazing. happened on Heartbreak Hill when you got there... You use a phrase that is really good. I mean, like, like you've been running this race, 30 miles per hour headwind. It's pelting you sideways, but it's kind of coming and going. It was coming and going. I was like, this is fun. You know, it was like... Um, this is fun. It, it was running. I remember saying to myself, okay, I'm just going to run in a really cold shower. I felt like I was in a bathroom. And I, <laughs> I was it was as if I said to myself for three hours... 40 minutes or so, whatever my goal time was, I'm going to just make believe like I'm in my bathroom, in the shower, it's really <laughs> cold, and there's wind, and I'm just going to keep going, and I know that once I'm done taking the shower, it's going to be a warm towel, it's all going to be done. <laughs> so, yeah, as you know, you know you're, 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 leaving, you're, you're leaving the start line, and you're climbing down, and hopping, continuing, and and uh, it's, it's, I'm still, I had like four layers, five layers of clothing on, and, and ponchos, and you know, plastic bags flying everywhere. And at the first, I didn't go down into like, I didn't get into like race gear apparel <laughs> until <laughs> mile nine or 10, um, where I was, you know, down to my planned race attire mm-hmm. of arm sleeves and the singlet and, and everything else. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pelting rain. And I was like, okay, this, is, this isn't, this is, this is bad, but I can, I can do this. So, you know, you get, you get to, mile 16 and you're approaching uh newton the hills and you, you make the right on the fire the firehouse and you're going up and you know here comes heartbreak hill 
And it's like, wow, it's going to be like, this is it. I'm going to get over this hill and it's going to be like, boom, straight down a bow street. I'm on Heartbreak Hill. And I don't know what the F happened, but <laughs> it got worse. Like the, the sky broke. It got windier and pelted rain that felt like golf balls. And like, it just broke. And I was like, I was like, this is ironic. And this is like the last test. I'm gonna make this a hill, yeah. and like it have to. And like the crowd was amazing and supporting and pushing up the hill. And I just remember, just like there was a moment where I just felt like I was running in place. There was so much wind, and I was like, <laughs> I'm "Really? Am I going anywhere?" And I remember, and I heard Stuart and like Coach Brian Shaw, "Swing your arms, keep moving your arms." And I'm like, yeah. "That's all I kept saying was like, just get over this damn hill." And it, it felt like crazy. forever. Yeah, I think think um, Heartbreak Hill was just like. All hell broke loose. I was like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> it's like I thought it was bad enough. What is this? This is like the last. I think it was the two running statues that are in Newton, the mm-hmm. two runners, the famous runners that they probably call Heartbreak Hill because of the heartbreak when the guy had to he oh, couldn't run anymore, yeah. so his colleague ran faster and he ended up finishing the race. That's why it's That's called right. Heartbreak Hill. And um, I was like, "These are the ghosts. Those two mm. athletes. The ghosts are." pelting rain on us right now (laughs) (laughs) well you and i we conferred afterwards and we both had similar experiences of it eventually just laughing because it was so ridiculous oh we laughed (laughs) i mean we i I think i laughed about the entire race but it was such a great sense of accomplishment of course right Uh, so we can't talk about boston without talking about the green hat Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about the green hat? Yeah, story time. Story time. <laughs> um, it was the day before, right before we went to dinner, um, we had Heartbreak Hill Running Company right down the street from our Airbnb. And um, I remember saying to Ali, I was like, Ali, let's, I think let's go, let's, go, let's go down the street to the running store and, and see if I need a last minute thing. It's gonna be, we know it's going to be cold. We know it's going to be raining. That's a given. You're actually looking for arm sleeves, I think. That is right. Probably looking for arm sleeves. And... Um, we walked in the store and like arm sleeves and then like I'm paying and looking around and I'm like, I oh, look at this this stupid Brooks not stupid, but this, this <laughs> neon green. Yeah. It was a neon green shower cap with a with a with a bill on it, with a yeah. uh, you know, and a, a visor on it. And um It's like a jockey. And I picked it up and it weighed like a feather. And I felt the material and I'm like, this is like a shower cap and I know like there's something about this hat that might just come in handy. So I bought it. Damn, it saved our ass. It saved my ass. It was just, it, it was a lifesaver of having that liner of a shower cap on my head underneath the tight knit warmth of, of a beanie on top of it. And that's what definitely saved. I'm sorry, it was the vice versa. The beanie, the beanie first and then the, the green shower cap Brooks mm-hmm. running at on top. Well, I think the three of us got the last three in Boston that year. And we bought, that's right, we got the last three of them, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We have all of those Brooks hats. Because then you tracked down one for me. Thank you. We tracked one down. So I think it might have been, was it the same day? or It was the same was it day. two days? Um, it was the day before. I think I might have gotten mine. You yes. got yours two, two days, days before. before yeah. And then the day before, we tracked one down yeah. for Anne. And mm-hmm. so we went to, was it Cambridge? That's where mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, yeah, the Cambridge store. And then there was one on the model, on the mannequin. And you're like, I'll take that one. Yeah. Because <laughs> you never know. Just in case. <laughs> yep. yep. But also, another really good score that was your idea was the uh, Mylar Poncho. That's what saved me in the Start Village. So for anyone who's running Boston next weekend, go to the, when you're at the expo, there is someone who sells Boston ponchos that have um, the hood. A little hood. Yeah, that yeah, was my favorite. They're mylar, that, like the um, what's it called? The 
heat sheets. Heat sheet, heat sheet. Yeah, yeah, it's the heat sheet material. Yeah, and it weighed the, nothing, the and it was it was super comfortable, and it had the hat on it. So yeah, that saved me in the beginning. By the way, listeners can't see this, but the cookie you just bit into is has been labeled everything but the kitchen sink. Oh, cookie, got it. Arlette made those. These are absolutely delicious. <laughs> everything but kitchen sink. All yeah, right. she just kind of put. Whatever, she, there. whatever like could go in a and cookie. Kale, and there's like a piece of chicken in there. <laughs> Bacon. Like, what is going on? <laughs> okay, so um, can we talk about the beautiful mural that's in Aldea yeah. on the side of the wall? So mm-hmm. um, you commissioned a Portuguese artist named Mario Belém, is that mm-hmm. how he says his name, mm-hmm. to um, do a mural on your wall. And I looked him up. He he's, was primarily a digital illustrator and graphic designer, and then right. he turned towards paint and graffiti and right. doing murals. Um, it's so beautiful, and it tells your story, really. And I have no front and center are sneakers. Can you kind of walk us through the, the process and the, the imagery? Yeah, so um, when Mario uh, and I started, first started talking, he sent some ideas and inspiration. First, he asked me a lot of questions. He was flipping through pages of my book and said, you know, what's what's your idea for this mural? What do you want to depict? And um, he started asking me a lot of questions about growing up to Portuguese community, what it was like, what are my hobbies, what were kind of music that I listen to like all kinds of real I'm like what is this why is a guy asking me all these questions um, so he in the end he presented me with two different options of directions of what the mural was going to be one was like a chakra of your third eye and it evolved around the chakra and then uh, branched off into different um, areas of life and then the other one was a was um, a tree with different branches coming off of it and I gravitated to the tree. I mean, I there was something about the the way the tree uh, spoke to me, and um, he depicted it as a tree of life, and that's what came about it. And he presented it with the tree trunk, incorporated the chakra, the eye, into it at the top as well. So that that still exists. So he kind of it was a blended both options a little bit together, and. Um, the tree of life starts with my upbringing um, Portuguese community with my parents um, you know my parents names are on a, a wooden spoon and a, and a fork my dad's name and then it talks about the the culture of, of, of eating and uh, going to church and and um, and growing up in my aunts and uncles restaurant bar which is also depicted on, on the tree of life and then uh it fast forwards to my years in school where i was listening to run dmc and breakdancing and then so there's a cassette tape coming off of a tree branch and then there's <laughs> then there's um uh, a picture of uh of the, actually the first one off to the left is of a sailing old portuguese ship with the portuguese flag on it which depicts my mom and dad's arrival in the u.s as immigrants and then, and then I'm born, of course, in my such a later time. And then it, it continues with uh, my basketball years. It then goes into uh, my first um, arrival in New York City with a Big Apple snow globe. And then it goes into um, it goes into uh, to my career in Paris, in Spain, in San Sebastian. Uh, this is all branches of this tree, and I, I think Mario just nails it. So you can like I can sit there and like like yeah, this this tree depicts every chapter of my life mm-hmm. and where I went. 
so it's definitely very personal and um it it uh he just nailed he just nailed it he just nailed it and i think it's it's just so beautifully done uh and translates into a great story it's really beautiful and he did it really quickly too right like uh, almost about quickly he took him, <laughs> it took him a, a week of working overnight 10 12 hours a day very sleep deprived Wow. Um, I'm so grateful for his talent, talent, and hard work and vision. Um, and he's just such an amazingly talented artist. He is, yeah. Yep. How come you decided to do the mural? What, what were you thinking about? You know, after nine, at that point it was nine years of Aldea's, um, what I refer to the blue wall. It was just um, a wonderful um, Silver Hill Atelier company that. Through our, through our original interior designer of Aldea, commissioned to do this wall on the left side of Aldea that takes into consideration the narrowness of the restaurant and then the ceiling height, and they were able to make this blue, different hues of blue that made it look like it was a curtain. So it made it look as if you were able to just put your hands into the wall and push the curtain outside, which isn't, of course, wasn't true. It was all it was all a a, uh, a mirage or. You know, Trump just, loyal. Yeah, Trump loyal. And it was beautiful to the point where I would mess with customers. Like, if they walk in, like, welcome to Obey. I'm like, oh, where's the rest? I'm like, it's right behind that curtain. And they would literally <laughs> take their hands and, like, yeah. That's awesome. so after nine years, I was like, it's time for a change. Mm-hmm. You know, after we're looking at the same blue wall, or, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, you, it was time for something different. And I knew that I wanted it to do something colorful and bright and breathe new life into the restaurant and um, have, have it tell a story of, of me as, as a chef as what my first approach was. Little did I know that he would make a tree of life, but um, it was pretty awesome. It is really awesome. Yeah, so it was it was a t- it was a, just a matter of, of time for change, you know, and like where Aldea has always been and is and will continue to be this restaurant where we, um, you know, it, it, I think to describe Aldea really quickly is it goes through stages of, of being stationary and sticking to one set type of cuisine Always with the Portuguese realm, right? And then, there's, then it goes to a point where it's like all of a sudden we just get really restless and have this creative bug and we just start changing dishes and like mm-hmm. moving along and keeping that train going. And then uh, it would it just continues that way. That's really nice. Um, as a customer, it's changed the space in such a nice way. It's so personal. And when you talk about your roots of coming to cooking and your family and the, the dinner table, I see it in that mural. It's like you come in and it's it's your place you know it's very personal it's really beautiful yeah thank you yeah thank you so at the end of each episode we usually do a training tip actually you know what let me make it specific this time around i'll put you on the spot for a different thing um it's hard to take the first step to change a chapter or jump into something new in your in your life right whether it's the first run you want to take or sign up for the first race or it might be just scary to like okay i've I want to open a restaurant, but let's say someone's at that point in their life. What would your advice be to them? To look fear in the face and dig down deep and bring out this bravery and this courage of jumping and facing fear in the face and grabbing it and knowing that it's better to face the fear and and jump at it than it is to have res- to, to have regrets and saying, "Why well, I, I should have done that or I could have done that? Why didn't I do it?" You know that that big saying is like, "What would you What would you do if you knew that you wouldn't fail?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's that it's that kind of a thing. But courage, mm-hmm. courage is a big thing. Um, bravery, mm-hmm. and just trying to 
go after things that you want and not letting obstacles, obstacles or what people may say or think or tell you. But it's it's really about going after what you believe in, what your dreams are, putting in the work, putting in the, the, the focus and the discipline into making it happen regardless. And all I like to refer to it as an all out in, an all out assault in achieving your goals. I like that. For yeah. those of you tapering for Boston, hope you heard Go that. Go get them. <laughs> I hope it doesn't rain. <laughs> Actually, that's what the forecast says right it now, does. but it can change. Yeah, yeah as change. we know, it can change in a day. Yeah, <laughs> it can change overnight. Yeah. Um, well, this has been so inspiring. Seriously, George, you're such an inspiring person. Just you guys are fortitude. amazing. I, I was so happy to be invited to this. It's an honor to talk to you guys. Love you guys like my family. It's like it's so um, cool to discuss these things and, and, and talk about um, how we got here. Yeah. Yep. Thank you Individual. so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we'll see you next Friday. We'll right see on. Listeners next Friday. Awesome. <laughs>